0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Makaitis.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 559 with David Burkus. David is going to share how you can motivate and inspire by picking a fight, and I hope you're doing well in this global fight against the coronavirus, staying safe and staying well. And if you're not so well, our thoughts and prayers are with you and and keeping uh, mentally sharp and mentally healthy with the challenges associated with quarantine, et cetera. So keep up the good fight. And David's got some pro tips for helping us with all kinds of fights and finding the inspiration and purpose underneath them. So you'll learn one, the three kinds of fights that inspire. Two, a simple trick to greatly boost motivation and efficiency. And three, the secret to getting along with coworkers you dislike. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, click, tap, expand your podcast app player's episode notes or description to view that. And if it's not quite clickable, tappable, because some aren't, bummer, you can just go to awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep559 to see those resources in that place. And if you want summary wisdom and insight from David and the guests who've gone before him, check out the Gold Nuggets. These provide quick two to three minute reads for some of the big messages that each of the guests shares in a bite-sized email and access to the vault of every Gold Nugget. That's pretty handy. Now, here's David's story. One of the world's leading business thinkers, David Burkus's forward-thinking ideas and best selling books are changing how companies approach innovation, collaboration, and leadership. As a skilled researcher and inspiring communicator, Burkus's award-winning books have been translated into more than a dozen languages, and his TED Talk has been viewed over 2 million times. A renowned expert, Burkus's writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, USA Today, Fast Company, and more. He's been interviewed by NPR, BBC, CNN, and us. Since 2017, Burkus has been ranked as one of the world's top business thought leaders by Thinkers50. Big thanks to David for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out Now, here's David. David, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me. Great title for a show, by the way. I just have to say that.
1: Oh, thank you. Yes, well, um, I like it clear. So that's what you're getting here.
2: Uh, (laughs) I understand one thing that you're awesome at is Brazilian (laughs) jiu-jitsu and you got a black belt. What's the story here? Yeah, so I have been doing uh, jiu-jitsu since probably 2016. I mean, like a lot of people, I have that exact same story of, college student, et cetera, go to Blockbuster when it's still around and rent one of those old UFC DVDs and watch this guy named Hoyce Gracie destroy everybody. And suddenly you're going, what is this weird art from Brazil that everyone's talking about? So you go to the first class and get just like beaten to a pulp, but you go, that was so much fun. And if you keep doing it for 13 years, eventually they hand you a black belt and you, you get to be not terrible, which is about what I would rate myself now. Black belt equals not terrible. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you're still, I mean, there's some people that like one of our coaches has been doing it for, let's see, he's 50, he's probably 40 years um, and he's still pretty fit. So he just, you'd think that you could beat up an old man, but you really can't. Well,
1: now, David, do you have any pro tips? If let's say someone's at a grocery store and they're buying the last roll of toilet paper or hand sanitizer (laughs) and someone attacks you,
2: what do you advise? Uh, Well, the first thing would be to not get in that situation, right? Distance is your friend. So the more that you can, I think, have situational awareness about who that guy that's been eyeing the toilet paper awkwardly is right. <laughs> and realize this is a situation I need to walk further away from, That that's really your friend. That, that should be the biggest goal. I think a lot of people end up jumping like you. I mean, you watch it now, but you also watch it during Black Friday shopping and things like that. People jump into confrontation way too quick. Keeping space from people is your friend.
1: Okay well so now that's advice for you know personal safety now when it comes to rallying a group of folks uh, you advocate that people pick a fight what do you mean by this phrase
2: yeah so pick a fight referring to it, it's it's a bit of a double meaning right so i believe that that fundamentally we've had these conversations about purpose for probably two decades now and yet a lot of people are still really bad at saying what the purpose of a company is we do we do mission statements or we try and start with why we try and do all those things and it it doesn't really rally people the way it should. And so um, I believe fundamentally when you look at the research that one of the best ways to give a clear and concise and motivating statement of purpose is if you can frame it as the answer to the question, what are we fighting for? Um, As a leader, if you can do that, individually, if you can do that, um, it, it just seems to, like you said, rally and motivate people a bit more But here's the key, you have to choose your fight wisely. So that's the secondary meaning. You also have to pick the right fight, which is almost never competitors. For the average employee, you're almost never motivated by, I work for Coke and I wanna destroy Pepsi. I'm probably gonna go to work for Pepsi one day or something similar. Mm -hmm. So you have to pick what is that higher purpose, that bigger thing that you're striving for. That's what the right fight looks like.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So you were fighting for something as opposed to against something. I guess maybe you could fight against something if it's
2: like intrinsically evil, like poverty. Yeah, or this disease. The way that I phrase it is, it's what are we fighting for, not who are we fighting, right? Okay, it's not about the other. Because again, you see, I mean, we're seeing it right now as we're recording this. This was totally unintentional, by the way. But like, we're seeing it right now. This this is arguably the first time in world history that every country in the world is fighting for the same thing, right? We're all and we're all mm-hmm. fighting against the same thing. Um, and it's sort of that proof of concept. There's not time in situations like this for little squabbles over which country is right and all this sort of stuff. And and the same thing happens organizationally when you have that true sort of purpose worth fighting for. Those little silos, politics, turf wars, they all get squashed to that larger purpose. So that's why I really emphasize it's what are we fighting for, not who are we fighting. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so when you're picking what you're fighting for, we got some pro
1: tips and pointers already in terms of not you know who are we fighting against. And so maybe paint a picture for us with an example in terms of maybe if you've seen some cool transformation stories or some contrasts, like here's an example of an organization that's fighting for something and it works great. By contrast, here's an organization that's not quite doing that. It's not working so great.
2: Yeah, yeah. So my my favorite example and one we talk about in the book of, of changing that fight midstream, because I think a lot of it's easy to see, oh, OK, this startup has this sort of big fight based mission. Uh, but it's a lot harder to do with an established organization. But in the in the late 1980s and er, and throughout the entirety of the 90s. Uh, A gentleman by the name of Paul O'Neill took the reins at Alcoa, which is aluminum manufacturing plant. They make a lot of different types of aluminum. Fun fact, they make the aluminum foil that goes around Hershey's Kisses, or they did for a really long time. Mm, Uh, And What they were running into when Paul O'Neill took over, stock price was declining, their efficiencies were declining. I mean, it's a normal 1980s, 1990s story of losing out to offshoring and manufacturing in developing countries and and that sort of thing. And A lot of people were wondering, what are you going to do to turn this company around? And the way O'Neill describes it, he says part of leadership is to create the crisis, right? But he knows that the the crisis of a declining stock price isn't going to rally anybody. The crisis of we need to be more efficient isn't going to rally anybody. So he chooses as his fight safety. He gets up on the very first day of his tenure at this press conference and says, instead of here's how we're going to increase profitability or shareholder value, et cetera. I mean, we're in this era where CEOs basically go right to buybacks and try and buy back stock as a cheap way to raise the stock price. He doesn't do any of that. He says, "I'd like to talk to you about worker safety. I'd like to talk to you about the number of people that are that lose a day of work because of preventable accidents. And I intend in my time at the leadership of Alcoa to go for a zero accident company. Now that's unheard of in manufacturing, but that's something worth fighting for. It speaks to that sacred value of who's to the left and to the right of you. And ironically, if you if you make a plant more safe, you make it more efficient anyway, so he knows that there's still this goal. We're going to turn the company around, but but just turning the company around doesn't rally anybody. He chooses to name the enemy, and in this case, the enemy is safety. Because if we beat that enemy, we'll find a lot more things that we accomplish along the way as well. And in in his time, by the time he retired in the late 1990s, the stock price had uh, increased fivefold. The company ran more efficiently. Alcoa now is like a pinnacle of safety. You can, you there are other manufacturing plants that go to Alcoa to learn how to be much more safe. But before he came, that was never a concern. them. It was was an acceptable um, cost of doing business. And it it hints at the first of like the three templates of fights that I outline in the book. I I call it the revolutionary fight, which is when you say this has been a norm uh, or a standard that the industry does, and we refuse to accept it as normal any longer. We don't find it acceptable. In Paul O'Neill's case, it was safety. We don't find some level of acceptable loss acceptable anymore. We're going for zero. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that's a revolution. While we're at it, what are the other two? Yeah. So the the other two, uh, the underdog fight, my, my personal favorite fight, because I'm from Philadelphia and we're the city of underdogs, um, is about not necessarily about what the industry is doing, but how you're perceived by that industry. Sometimes it's by competitors, other times it's by critics, et cetera. You leverage the underdog fight when you can point to a way that people are disrespecting your team, disrespecting your company, or um, underrating it, and you can point to why they're wrong. And this is really key. You need two things. It's not enough just to be criticized because they might be right. You also need a rebuttal, right? You need rejection, but also rebuttal for this one to work. And it turns out, I mean, this is, like I said, I'm from Philadelphia. We we know the Rocky story. It's our favorite. Our favorite sports hero is a fictional character who lost a boxing match. That's the, that's our, our, (laughs) you know, New England gets Tom Brady. We get a fictional character who loses a boxing match. But it turns out more modern research has shown that that really just that that desire to prove the critics wrong, even in a business context with the way people frame their careers, the way people frame uh, whether or not going into negotiations like salary negotiations, et cetera, the more that you can frame that narrative that this is about proving the haters wrong, the more you can actually inspire and motivate somebody. So that's the underdog fight. And the ally fight is, I think, one that a lot of organizations, look at, because if they're really a customer centric organization, this is an easy one for them because the ally fight is it's not about our fight at all. It's not about what we're fighting for, but we can point to a customer or some other stakeholder who is engaged in a fight every day. And we exist to help them. We exist to provide them what they need to win that fight.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. So um, pick it up what you're putting down here in terms of these are kind of visceral, emotional, maybe even primal human things here in terms of like, you know, no more, you know, for the revolution, or we're going to prove them wrong, like the Rocky story, or we are going to, you know, help someone who is in need of our help. And you sort of tap into that heroic action there. So yeah, I'm digging this. So then can you give us some examples? So we got Alcoa in terms of, hey, you know, efficiency and plants and let's, you know, lower costs and stuff doesn't do it as the way safety does. Can you lay out a few more to make it all click into place?
2: Yeah. A few more from the revolution or from the underdog or the ally? I'll take them all. (laughs) so my my favorite revolution story and this isn't actually in the book so this is new for you is i have this around my phone and you can see it but everyone else is just going to have to like google it there's a company based out of vancouver called pila case they make cell phone cases the difference between them and every other cell phone case is theirs don't sit in a landfill for 10,000 years when you get a new phone if you throw it in a compost pile it will uh, decompose within 10 years it's totally biodegradable Uh, if you compost it, right? Mm -hmm. So their revolution is there's this whole consumer goods company that finds using petrochemicals and creating plastics totally acceptable because we need a lower cost or whatever, right? They're totally, it's an acceptable norm that they're using this thing that's destroying the environment. They refuse to accept that. You ask anyone who works for PILA, what are you fighting for? They'll tell you they're fighting for a waste-free future. They're never gonna change consumerism. We're not gonna get people to like, it's not like a plastic bag, you can't reuse it, right? As soon as there's a new cell phone with a different design, it's hard to reuse that case, but we can change what's consumed to itself be waste-free. And what I think is really telling, they just did this about a, about six months ago, they launched their second product which proves that their focus is on this waste-free revolution idea because their second product has nothing to do with cell phone cases, which no strategic advisor would ever say, right? If you mm-hmm. you have this little niche inside of uh, electronics, inside of smartphone cases, the next thing you do is make an iPad case or something else. No, their next thing was sunglasses because that's the next thing that's consumable that they could tackle, right? We yeah. buy sunglasses in May, we, we've lost them by September. So if we can trust that they're biodegradable, somebody finds them, they get put into that landfill, they'll, de- they'll decompose, they'll biodegrade eventually, then at least we're making it waste-free even then. We're never gonna change consumerism, but we can change what's consumed and make it waste-free. That's my other favorite revolution story.
1: Yeah, well, you know, and that reminds me, you talk about, it doesn't seem like a strategic adjacency and the classic strategy you know, matrices type of thinking. Yeah. But from that fight, that purpose perspective, it makes total sense. And I'm reminded of Pat Lanchoni, who we had recently talked about a company their purpose, why they were founded was to provide good work opportunities for people in the community. And so they did roofing, but they're like, hey man, if people didn't want roofs, you know, we could switch to landscaping or concrete or like, that's fine. And so that might not seem like, I don't know, the same skill set or, or whatever, but it fits in from that perspective and it continues to be inspiring even when there is a shift afoot. So that's pretty handy. Well, so then how do we, let's say, I'm thinking if we zoom into maybe an individual contributor or Mm. uh, someone who has a small team, how would you recommend, I'm gonna throw you into the fire here. Let's just say, (laughs) hey, you know, we're a marketing team. And uh, you know, what we try to do is get a lot of impressions and conversions and brand awareness and our story out there. And so these are the kinds of the things that we measure. And so maybe that's a little bit flat, you know, from a fight perspective. Yeah. How might we go about tapping into the power of the fight?
2: Yeah, so the first thing, like if you're running the small team, for example, the first thing you gotta do is figure out which of these fights will most resonate with your existing people. This is actually the big... Misconception with a lot of leaders that I work with is that you know you as the leader get to declare and cast the vision. Uh It doesn't work that way, and it never really has. You get to put to words the vision that's already in people's hearts and minds, uh, but they haven't really thought about enough, right? Um, And so, so there's that idea. What's what's going to resonate the most with you? If you're an individual, again, I think it's thinking about each of these in turn and figuring out which of these narratives. I I know I joke that I'm from Philly, but the truth is like the way that I'm wired that underdog fight is actually what um, inspires me, motivates me to get to work, et cetera. And then you gotta choose what stories you need to be exposing yourself to to keep that up, right? So let's say you choose the ally fight, for example, you're that marketing team, you find out that the ally fight, meaning it's not, yeah, we're measuring progress with impressions, but what the larger company does can be framed inside that ally fight. Then you have to figure out how can I make sure that I'm seeing evidence of that finished product? This is, I think, the big problem in a lot of motivational research inside of organizations is that very few people inside the orga- organization actually get to experience what in psychology we call task significance. They actually get to see the end product of their of their labor and get to see how it helps people. Um, the, Adam Grant sort of did a lot of research on this about 10 years ago and reframed it as what he called pro-social motivation. The idea that if you're working to help people, you're more motivated, but even task significance, even if it's one of the other, types of fights, I think is hugely important. So I think the biggest thing you can do once you figure out what resonates with you is how do I make sure that I'm catching that material, that I'm catching stories, success stories from clients. If it's the ally fight, how do I catch um, stories about what's going on in the industry and why we're doing differently so that I'm seeing that on a regular basis? Because most of us in the day in, day out, especially if our performance metrics and things like that, or how many impressions we get, on random websites, we lose sight of that larger thing. And so if you're the only one that can do it for you, do it for you. If you're running even a small team, that becomes one of your jobs is how do you curate those stories? It's not your job to cast the vision. It's your job to curate those stories.
0: Mm,
1: yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, you know, that reminds me of right now is, you know, hey, we're speaking on a podcast and all I really see is you. And then I see impressions, downloads, etc. in my platform. And so we had a 10 million downloads celebration in Chicago, which just informal and for some folks over for dinner. And then I'll just give a shout out here. We had a couple from Alabama and uh, Andrew told me that they started listening to the show on the way back from a funeral. Hmm. And they were listening to a kind of a heavy audiobook, like Tom Clancy, you know, I think terrorists and stuff. It's like, you know what, let's just mix this up and change it to something. And then he heard the show and it was really upbeat and it was useful and inspiring and, and it keeps coming back. And so I thought that was super awesome that one, they valued it enough to drive <laughs> from Alabama <laughs> to Chicago uh, just to have dinner. <laughs> uh, so that was super cool. And, and to, to remember that um, these numbers in this, we talked about impressions, mm-hmm. translate into human beings who are having an experience that is empowering and worthwhile. And boy, that could resonate hugely if it's in sort of medical care. But even in smaller matters, you know, in terms of, boy, I'm just looking around my desk, a candle that makes for a nice, intimate, positive experience for someone who's having dinner or praying or just set in a mood that's more pleasant for everyone there. And if you're marketing candles, (laughs) (laughs) I think that does connect and resonate a whole lot more than, hey, uh, 12,400 people uh, saw our Facebook ad about our candles.
2: Yeah, no, I I totally agree. You know, a a lot of organizations too will, rather than even clicks and impressions, will just label growth, right? Here's just, this is how we're growing. And therefore that, but growth isn't a sense of purpose, right? That's like saying, hey, we're driving 65 miles an hour and now we're driving 70. We should all be excited. Where's the car going, right? Tell Mm -hmm. me more about that. And I think, you know, I think that's incumbent on if you're in any leadership role, even if it's a small team, but it's also incumbent upon us. One of the practices I've had, it's admittedly, it's easier to do when you're an author, but one of the practices I've had is to develop what I used to call the win folder. Um, I don't know what it's currently called. I should look on my desktop, but it's basically when people really do send you those thank you emails. I drag them into a folder so that when I need them, I can pull them back, right? We we get those for any of our work, even, even if our work is the impressions and somebody else uh, on the uh, elsewhere in the company said, hey, thank you so much for this. I know this project was rough and look at this success. When they give you that sort of thank you email or that success email, find a way to keep that because that's gonna be the easiest way to give yourself that reminder is to keep looking back on those sort of things because those are, I mean, we like to think that an organization's customers are just the people that spend money with them, but your customers are everyone in the organization who benefits from the work that you do. And so finding ways to capture stories from all of them is hugely important. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Yes. Well, why don't you go ahead and tell us about a win that keeps you inspired? (laughs) Yeah. So I was a full-time business school professor for seven years, and this started as a non-digital, right? Right. We taught business and we, I taught a couple of the sales classes. We taught about thank you notes and people actually listened to me and started sending them. So I had a little box that was full of those thank you notes. Now it's been electronic. Probably my favorite one in the last six months or so, and this is why it comes to the top of my mind, is my prior book was called Friend of a Friend, which is a book about how networks and inside organizations, but also like if you're looking for a job or you're in sales and trying to find more clients, networking works as well. And I got an email from a, a woman who was totally dissatisfied with her job in PR and moved to New York thinking this is I was a PR major this is where I'm supposed to go to get into film and television and news and media and all that sort of stuff and just hated it loathed it walked through Barnes and Noble found the book which is which is great but also a little depressing because I, I you know I wish People like that would already know who I exist, but that's a whole other <laughs> dilemma. Um, found, found the book, read it, and sort of started to develop a plan of action for moving into that world of fashion. And now that's the world um, that she's in. I, I have no idea why fashion appealed to her. But it is. if you're already in New York, it's not a bad place to transition from media over to because it's also based there. Um, And literally just, it was two emails, right? She sent one, I sent one. And then uh, I think she sent one back. And I have those two emails in my computer about her job transition over time. And uh, I look at it, especially when I look at the sales numbers for friend of a friend uh, and we have an off week, I go back and I pull emails like that. That's powerful. Thank you.
1: Okay, so then by contrast, you say that, you know, it's not so effective for the leaders to, you know, go offsite and go figure it out and cast a vision or a mission statement. You say that they're often terrible. What's the story here?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think they all start well-meaning, right? The The process that we use to develop a lot of them is really flawed, right? So we go off on the offsite. Uh, we, usually we start with sort of a draft or we start with what we do, right? Which is just not necessarily why we do it, but just what we do. Like, Like your example of the roofing company, right? It's not really why we do it. It just happens to be, this is the business that worked best for the people we have. But we start with that description of what we do And then everybody turns into like college English professors or parliamentarians and starts debating the specific wording, where this comma goes. The first thing we need to do, because we care about everybody, is we need to make sure that everybody gets represented. And so we talk about shareholders and customers and stakeholders and the community and a ton of different people. And then it's not enough to say what we do. We also just say how we do it. So we throw in buzzwords like synergy and excellence and innovation and all of that sort of stuff. And the end result is, is a phrase that ends up, I and mean, it's way longer than the answer to the question, what are we fighting for? Part of the reason for the question is just cut through the crap of a mission statement and tell me what you're fighting for. Um, but it also becomes incredibly difficult to even remember. I have literally been in, in the room with CEOs of companies and said, what is your mission statement? And seen them like look under the table at their phone where they have to look up their the investors or about us page of their website to find it. Because we were all excited when it came out two years ago and we put it on a glass plaque um but if it doesn't actually uh inspire people using one of the three levers that we were talking about it gets very easily forgotten.
1: Mhm. Yeah, I hear you. Well, now I'm intrigued. So some people might say, well, you know, that's really great for any number of those examples, safety with aluminum mm-hmm. candles, writing books. Have you seen some folks do a bit of a connection to a fight in maybe an industry or a set of activities that would seem like the opposite of inspiring, like it's really
2: hard to find a purpose here, but by golly, these guys did it, and that worked for them. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple different there. I mean, one of the big things we're seeing is, like you said, that I, uh, after I wrote the book, became aware of a company in Cincinnati called Janco that is very similar. They're a janitorial company, mm-hmm. um, but their whole thing is to help people get settled. Usually, uh, folks that are trying to climb the socioeconomic ladder or immigrants, etc., trying to find and get them settled and, and move on. So there's that idea of what we actually do isn't necessarily all that, um, important. So there's that idea, but then there's other things that people do, or, or sometimes it's, it's supplied to you from the business model that make what you do not necessarily all important. Now, uh, if I'm getting at something that might be behind your question, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody properly leverage a fight and say, we're going to do evil, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to call it the revolution because the rest of the industry does, does good. But like, this actually is an example that's coming into my head, but it reminds me of, we were just talking about mission statements. Sometimes if you've got a good fight that you've adopted, the mission statement isn't actually all that important. So there's a, there's a little company you may have never heard of them. Uh, they're called Hershey, they're Hershey company. Uh-huh. You know, they, they, make, they, make, uh, you know this, they make this candy. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, right? And for, for a long time, actually, they had the worst mission statement I've ever seen. Their mission statement was literally undisputed marketplace leadership. That's our mission. In, in these industries, we aspire to that. And thankfully, they changed it over time, mostly because people like me criticized them for a really long time. But the truth is they didn't need um, that mission because their fight has been a part of the company DNA for a lot longer than that. Not a lot of people know this, but if you work at Hershey, you definitely do. Milton Hershey before he died, set up a school for biological and societal orphans, the Milton Hershey School. It's literally mm-hmm. almost across the street. You basically, if you go to Hershey, Pennsylvania, you have the headquarters of Hershey, Hershey Park, which is an amusement park. And then on the other side of Hershey Park is the school, right? They're all sort of laid out almost along the same street. And it, there. this isn't like a corporate social responsibility. We give some of our profits to this school that Milton started. When Milton was preparing his estate when he was getting ready to die, he set up a trust for the school and willed his shares to the trust. So the trust and the school is still the majority shareholder of the the school. I mean, it's not that the the profits fund the school. The trust owns the school. Milton Hershey School is owns Hershey Foods, and so they could get into any industry they want at this point as a company. And there, there's a lot of different divisions now. They're in entertainment. They make a lot more than just chocolate. All of that sort of thing. And so I think they're probably my my favorite example of a company that you could go into any business, and as long as the trust still owns the primary business. You could change your mission statement to whatever you want to because the sense of purpose that people are going to feel, it's that ally fight. What are we fighting for? We're fighting to give those kids an education.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: That's cool. Well, so we talked about the fight a lot. I'd love it, you know,
1: adjacent to that or complimentary to that. Do you have any other best practices that make a world of difference when it comes to motivating a team?
2: Yeah, so the task significance piece I think is a huge one. Um, I think the biggest one that we are in, um, (laughs) we're probably in dire need of in this world of virtual work that we're about uh, about to face, is I think we don't often tell people um, how best to interact with us. Like if you, if, you look, if you think about the majority of research that you read on people inside of Teams, how you interact with your coworkers, et cetera, most of it is like, and I'm guilty of this, most of it is content about how to deal with that coworker that disagrees with you, how to deal with this coworker that you can't get along with, et cetera. Um, I think we'd be a lot better if we thought about us as the problem and we actually presented to our team, hey, here are my little idiosyncrasies, right? So like Mm -hmm. mine is I'm very easily distracted, not by little shiny things, but you'll say something and then I'll think about the ramifications of it and you'll keep talking, but I'll be over here thinking about how that affects some downstream issue. Like it's just, I'm a systems thinker like that. And you may have to catch me up at times. You may also find me super excited about an idea that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but uh, it's sparked in that meeting, right? Mm -hmm. So I try and present to people, these are the little idiosyncrasies of, of how I work. I've sometimes heard this described as an owner's manual for yourself. What if you created an owner's manual for yourself and gave it out to the Rest of your team and said, "Hey, based on people that used to work with me in the past, and my own introspection, these are the things you can expect: strengths and weaknesses. So that we can get a little more clear. I think that goes a whole lot further than just reading a bunch of listicles about how to deal with a coworker that we disagree with. Mm, absolutely, and that it's so powerful in
1: terms of that display example of vulnerability invites others to do the same, and just go so far in building trust and camaraderie and all kinds of good things. Yeah. There. Oh no,
2: I totally agree. I mean, I mm-hmm. I had this situation. I'll just." in the spirit of trust and vulnerability, I'll I'll actually share this from two days ago. I was in a back and forth, more chat-based debate with somebody that's, we'll call him a colleague. Like a lot of the work that I do now is we don't work for the same company, but we're all working for the same mission, be it getting the book out or whatever. And we're arguing back and forth. And I said, uh, we were saying something and he said, "You know, sorry, this was harsh, whatever. And I I said, no, I wasn't offended. And then I immediately answered back and went, no, actually that's a lie. I I was, but then I reminded myself of this, right? Mm -hmm. And I forget what the this was, but it was basically like, no, in that moment, I really was angry at you for like 45 seconds, but I, I got over it and here's why. And I don't think he had ever had somebody actually say, yeah, you you made me angry and I got over it because I care more about this project, right? Um, so those little, I think, displays of, of vulnerability, I think are hugely important. I, I do want to caution here around vulnerability and authenticity that it's also not an excuse to be a jerk, right? Oh, like yeah. if you're le- like this owner's manual is not... Uh, here's all the things you can expect about how I tell it like it is.
1: (laughs) Sometimes I'm going to scream at you.
2: Right, yeah, (laughs) no, exactly. It's kind of me. Throw things and walk off. (laughs) No, that's not what we're talking about. But we are talking about, hey, here are the things I know about what it's like to work with me uh, and and some ways that I found... Um, are easiest, here are my flaws so that we can work around them. And, and hopefully that inspires a conversation. And, you know, that works a whole lot better than like, let's all do a book club or let's all take a personality test and talk about our differences. I, I don't know that those go all that far, but that vulnerability and open sharing definitely does.
1: Yeah. well, and I think the tools, you know, whether it's Myers-Briggs or or any number of things out there can be a fantastic starting point in terms of like, yes, this is highly resonant for me. And so I will share it. And it was interesting when you mentioned that that person had never had anybody admit <laughs> that they were upset or offended. I think that's, oh, that's a whole nother ballgame, but there've been some times where people have said, you know, that they did this thing and they said, they're sorry. And I really was kind of ticked off. And I said, oh, I forgive you. <laughs> and yes. Like
2: It's like, people are used to hearing that. And they're like, Actually, that feels more intense. Right. No, you're supposed to respond with no worries or, oh, it's no problem yeah. or whatever. Like, no, it really was a problem, but <laughs> yeah, I forgive you was. because I care about you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's, it's the same deal with like, um, I mean, I learned, I learned this from like my kids and like parenting books, right? Which is uh, ironically more relevant. Most of them are more relevant to the workplace than they are to yeah. parenting. But one of the other things around emotions is like, it's, it's always okay to say your emotion. It's never okay to blame somebody else. Like so, what we work on with our kids, you can never say, you know, mom, you're making me mad. You can say, I'm mad. You can you can say you're mad at me as much as you want, mm-hmm. but you got to take responsibility for your emotion. And then when you say you're mad, I'll help you. That might be because I have to apologize, or that might be I need to help you calm down, whatever. It's it's totally cool to label your emotions. But I think we're in this, we're in this game where we only got half of that in the corporate world where We were talking about, you're not supposed to use you statements, use I statements. We ended up just saying nothing instead. And we just kind of masked those emotions. So people say, I'm sorry. And we say, no worries. And that's a lie on both counts because they're not sorry and we're still angry. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Well, hey, man, labeling
1: emotions. We're working that with our two-year-old who's been doing a lot of screaming. Maybe you heard some. Mm. (laughs) And so we got these emotion flashcards, which are really helpful in terms of the different happy, disappointed, sad, angry. And that's been going far. Uh, we also yeah. say, Johnny, could you please stop screaming? And then when he does, we clap and he likes being applauded. So oh, I like that. I like that.
2: Mine are not too, but I might still steal that. <laughs> for my coworkers, I mean,
1: not yeah, for my- Please stop <laughs> screaming. <laughs> all right. Well, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things.
2: No, I mean, I, I think, you know, to bring it all together, I think emotions, again, are a powerful thing in the workplace. And we're just sort of realizing that. And that's- One of the reasons I think this purpose thing, like you said, it's almost primal, this idea of a fight, because it taps into that emotional level. Purpose is great, but if it's just logically apparent, we see how A, B equals C, and C is a good thing in the world. That's not as motivating as let's tap into that actual emotion of here's an injustice I need to fix, or here's a critic I need to prove wrong, et cetera. So ironically, uh, we've hit it from both angles, that power of sort of emotions at work used properly. Mm -hmm. All right, well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah, one of my favorite quotes, I mean, I was trained as an organizational psychologist, uh, even though I always wanted to be a writer. And one of my favorite quotes from that world is W. Edwards Deming, in God we trust, all others bring data. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? So I talked about it a bit, the pro-social motivation piece around, uh, and some of Adam Grant's studies, and we, we've, you probably heard these because, you know, I know you and you're smart around the, the doctors and hand-washing, very timely study for right now, uh, but also the call center workers and feeling the beneficiaries. But I feel like we need to shine more attention on a lot of those studies because one of the things you realize right off the bat is that organizations are pretty terrible at sharing those stories, at sharing those wins and those people who benefit from work. So, you know, it's a popular study already, but it's not popular enough mm-hmm okay and for those who have not heard
1: it now's your chance to popularize it uh what should they know <laughs> oh, yeah,
2: about sorry. it <laughs> sorry i we all get nerdy here. I apologize. I shouldn't assume. So Grant, uh, while he was a, a PhD researcher at the University of Michigan, the, the first study of this was a call center study looking at, um, especially if you were going to a state school, like I went to grad school at OU. Um, and the very first thing I got was, in, in terms of any communication from the University of Oklahoma was a call from a student trying to raise money for scholarships, right? Mm-hmm. Every every large school has these call centers where we're just calling alumni, asking for money all the time. And, and I appreciate them, right? Because they're like, like they're they're trying they're working. These are kids who are trying to pay their own way through school. Um, talking to them is a bit like talking to the cat in the hat or the the the, the Green Eggs and Ham guy, right? I forget it. Sam. It's a bit like talking mm-hmm. to Sam. I am because it's like no, I don't want to donate a thousand. No, I don't want to donate in a box. No, I don't want to <laughs> donate twenty dollars with a fox. Like I just I don't. Um, but so Grant Grant looked at this. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly sort of draining job, and Grant looked at it and thought, how can we make how can we increase that task significance piece? Leverage that pro social motivation is the term that he would use, and so he designed this study where uh, basically everybody in the call center got put into three groups. One group got an extra ten minute break one day. Another group during that 10-minute break got to read letters from students saying how much they appreciated the scholarship that they earned because of these call center efforts. And a third group got to meet an actual student. So they went to the break room for the normal break and there is a student who describes how the scholarship helped him, how he wouldn't be able to afford to go to uh, University of Michigan without it, et cetera. Interestingly enough, there was no effect in group one or two. Obviously, there's no group in group one because they just got an extra break. Mm -hmm. But group three made more phone calls afterwards for a number of weeks, raised more money per phone call. None of these groups received any training on how to be a better salesperson or anything like that. It was just the sheer motivation to, I can put a face and a person to who I'm helping, right? I know what I'm fighting for at this point. I know it just feels like I'm on phone call, but I'm fighting to help keep those kids who would otherwise not have it stay educated, um, had a dramatic effect on their motivation with no other interventions, right? Mm -hmm. So Grant wrote all this up in in a... series of uh, follow-up studies too and kind of labeled this term pro-social motivation, which I think personally, like I said, I think it needs to be more popular. We talk about extrinsic motivation at all times. We talk about extrinsic. I think we're going to start talking about pro-social social motivation like it's a third lever of that level of motivation, right? That it goes alongside these other two. All right. Thanks. And how about a favorite book? One of my favorite books is by an intellectual hero of mine named Roger Martin. It's called The Opposable Mind, um, mm-hmm. and it's about how, especially in business, but even in life, His thing was when we look at a lot of different mental models of how a business should operate, for example, it's low cost or differentiation, or we look at how you interact with customers, either speed of service or quality of service. A lot of times those models that seem opposed are not actually opposed. And it's the leader or even the individual contributor that can find a way to integrate those two models and leverage the strengths of both. That's why it's called the opposable mind that can really thrive and create something new. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? My probably absolute, this is going to sound super, super lo-fi. My absolute favorite tool is Facebook Messenger. I don't know Mm -hmm. why. Um, I feel like there's a lot of stuff you can do in iMessages or Slack, but there's like a little bit more you can do inside of Facebook Messenger. But then there's not all the other um, disruptions. And what I like about it is I probably could figure out how to do this better on my computer. But what I like about it is I can get at it from just about anywhere. I'm on my tablet. It's auto-installed there. I'm on my phone. It's there. I'm on my desktop. It's a click, it's sort of a click away, right? So I never could get messages to work the way it should. So I know that seems weird, but that's probably how I interact with more um, colleagues and that sort of stuff. It's the only, I don't, and I don't use Facebook for anything else. I literally only have Messenger on my phone. Okay. And how about a favorite habit? something you do that helps you be awesome? So we, uh, we talked about our kids already. So I'll, t- I'll tell you this one, and, and yours is at the age where you could start this. My wife brought this into our daily kind of shutdown routine. So apparently when she was growing up, it was a common question they asked her on the dinner table. Our, our life is such that we have more family breakfast than we have family dinners. So we didn't even ask it there. But before we go to bed, we asked both of our kids, uh, what was the favorite part of your day? And when they were, when the oldest was about, three, maybe three and a half, he started asking it back to us and wouldn't let us put him to bed until we gave him an mm-hmm. answer too. And so that little kind of, I mean, now we'd call it a gratitude practice and all of this sort of fluffed up stuff, but I really just like that question. What was the favorite part of your day? Let's, let's spend 30 seconds and go, what was the favorite part of today? What went the absolute best today? Um, and so we still do it. They're, now they're eight and six, uh, but we still do it almost every night. That uh, We don't probably don't remember every night, but we still do it pretty much every night.
1: And what's a particular nugget you share that you're known for?
2: Uh, I like to say that I'm trying to make the experience of work suck a little bit less. Mm-hmm. And I do that in a variety of ways. Pick a Fight is one of them. Uh, a lot of the other books that I've written, but we also put out a lot of content, just like you said, about about how to interact better with coworkers and show motivation. I think, I think work, the big, grand, overarching theme or my personal fight is that work is far more important to think about work-life balance as just a number of hours because toxic work will drag itself home and positive work will make home life better as well. So we need to be talking about the experience of work in a way where people leave it more energized than they came.
1: All right. And if folks wanna learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
2: I would point them to the show notes for this episode because you do an awesome job writing up all those show notes with all of these little lightning round questions. And uh, if you're listening to this, you already know where that is. And let's be honest, both of our names are a little hard to spell. So no one's going to remember mm. that. I send you to davidbergus.com, but you already listened to the show. You know where the show notes are. Find me there. All righty. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for
1: folks looking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: Find your fight. Look at the tasks that you do and the, the story that would resonate the most with you and find a way to frame it and remind yourself of that story all the time. All right. David, this has been a treat. Thank you and good luck in your fights. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for fighting for people to
1: have a more awesome job. You know, my favorite takeaway from David here is actually that quick tip he shared associated with preempting fights and uh, disagreements with coworkers is just by sort of sharing, hey, this is kind of how I work. This is sort of what I do that annoys people. And just showing that vulnerability, that humility, that self-awareness and giving other people permission to say the same makes a world of difference. And I still remember there was a partner I worked with at a consulting firm and I just felt... nervous (laughs) whenever I was in his presence. And I was like, man, I don't know if you think I'm stupid or doing a terrible job or because you seem pretty uneasy about just about everything I present to you. And then one time we were just chatting and he mentioned that he said, yeah, I've got an anxious personality. I get it from my mother. I was like, oh, that's what's going on here. What a relief, (laughs) a relief for me. I guess he's feeling anxious, but a relief is like, oh, you don't think I'm bad or that um, everything I'm presenting to you is inadequate (laughs) or not going to be accepted in the eyes of the client, but rather this is just sort of how you are. You're kind of anxious about everything. All right, good to know. So a great tip from David. I've seen it in practice and it works. And I think that could also really help as you're sort of disclosing what's going on in your uh, remote working from home type situation in terms of saying, hey, you might see someone pop in. This is what's going on. And say, okay, gotcha. And so we're all in this together and they understand where you're coming from. It's just helpful, helpful context. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to albums we've referenced are at awesomeatgoodjob.com slash ep559er. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe to catch our next guest, Oscar Trimboli. He's talking about deep listening and the huge difference that it can make. And I really appreciate how Oscar spent a lot of time deep listening to the show before coming on it. So he knows how to deliver the goods. So good stuff from Oscar coming up. Hope to catch you there. In peace.
0: Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full-text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency-covered.